Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on rape, violence, self-harm, and abuse, so listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season six, episode nine, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2009 mumble gore horror film, The House of the Devil. It was written and directed by Ty West, and it stars Jocelyn Donahue, Tom Noonan, Mary Warrenov, Greta Gerwig, A.J. Bowen, and Dee Wallace. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, great. Then let's get this morning started. I actually want to add that Mary Warrenov, who plays Mrs. Ullman, She's in Silent Night, Bloody Night. Yes. Yeah, she's the main the main character. And we reviewed that, for those who don't know. We reviewed that movie. So it's one of my guilty pleasure horror films. It's not a good film, but I love it. And I'll link that review in the show notes. <laughs> Let's talk about like the production of this film. According to Nick Dawson, born in William... Wilmington, Delaware in 1980, writer-director Ty West spent his adolescence watching as many movies as he could catch on TV or rent from his local video store, but he didn't make his first film until he was gearing up to graduate from high school. His first short film and his good grades were enough to impress New York's School of Visual Arts, where he eventually attended college to study film production. After graduating, Wes completed two feature films, The Roost, which was in 2005, Trigger Man, which is in 2007, as well as the 2009 film Cabin Fever 2, Spring Fever, which he has since disowned, citing massive interference and re-editing as the reasons. And he actually wanted to remove his name completely from the film and give directing credit to Alan Smithy but his request was denied. And for those of you who don't know this, Alan Smithy is an official pseudonym used by film directors who wish to disown a project. And it was actually coined in 1968, and it was used until it was formally discontinued in 2000. So that's why he wasn't allowed to use the pseudonym. Wow, that's so crazy. Yeah, and that's why he wasn't allowed to use the pseudonym, because it had already been discontinued for like nine years. (laughs) So in early 2009, West wrote and produced and directed a web series, Dead and Lonely, for IFC Films, uh, and that series ended up, like, ending in October of 2009. However, while West was making Dead and Lonely, he was also making a little nostalgia-filled horror film called The House of the Devil. So The House of the Devil was shot in Connecticut, and it takes place in the 1980s. And the film was made with 16 millimeter film, giving it a like retro stylistic look that matched the decade. Similarly, some aspects of the culture of the 1980s were seen in the film as signifiers of the decade. 
The cinematography of the film also reflects the methods used by directors at the time. And for instance, um, West often has the camera like zoom in on characters. And that is like such a dated technique. And that was used in like horror films from the 70s. And it also continued into the 80s. Other stylistic signifiers include opening credits in yellow font accompanied by freeze frames and closing credits being played over a still image of the final scene. So according to Brad Miska, quote, while the 1980s jokes are fun, like when she plays heart and soul on the piano and entertaining on their own, what's impressive about The House of the Devil is that at no point is it self-aware. It could easily be billed as a true quote-unquote lost horror film from the 1980s. So the U.S. premiere was at the 2009 Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on April 25th. It was made available through video on demand on October 1st, 2009, and the film was then given a limited theatrical release in the United States on October 30th, 2009. The DVD and Blu-ray of the film were released on February 2nd, 2010, and a promotional copy of the film was released on VHS in a clamshell box like the ones that many early VHS films of the 1980s came in. Which is so cool. Amazing. I love it. So the film received mostly positive reviews from critics who felt that the slow burn buildup and fast paced payoff were brilliant. A good number of audiences, however, felt that the fast-paced ending was tacked on inappropriately, with a few of the plot points making little to no sense. Many have also stated that Ty West's apparently unlikable personality influenced their negative feelings about the film. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, House of the Devil has become a must-see modern classic among among horror aficionados, with Kevin Summerfield from Slasher Studios commenting that the film is, quote, not just a nostalgia piece for director Ty West. This is how horror movies should be made, unquote. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Strapped for cash and worried about paying the first month's rent for her new apartment, college student Samantha answers an advert posted near her college dorm looking for a babysitter. When she arrives with her best friend Megan in tow, she's greeted by a strange older man named Mr. Allman, who explains that he isn't actually looking for a babysitter, though he has an older son, but someone to care for his elderly mother while he and his wife are away for the night. Reluctant at first to agree to stay, Samantha finally gives in after he offers her $400 to stay until midnight and tells her that it's extremely important. Before leaving Samantha for the night, he introduces her to his wife, a strange and mysterious woman, and Megan leaves, upset by the fact that Mr. Allman lied to her about the advert. On her way back home, Megan stops to light a cigarette and is approached by a strange young man who asks her if she's the babysitter. When she says no, he abruptly shoots her in the head. Meanwhile, back at the house, Samantha finds a photograph of a family standing by the Almond's car, and it is revealed that on the third floor of the house, the same family in the photograph has been sprawled out around a pentagram and candles that have been presumably set up by the Almond's, and they are all dead. As Samantha settles in with her pizza and some scary movies, she learns from the news that a rare lunar eclipse will be happening that night, and soon after, some strange things start happening in the house. 
Samantha begins to feel odd and eventually passes out after eating some drugged pizza delivered by the same young man that shot Megan. It turns out that the young man is actually the almond's son, and they're all in on a plot to use Samantha in a satanic ritual to bring forth the Antichrist. Samantha wakes up tied down and gagged inside of a pentagram where the dead family was laid as the almonds, led by their creepy, misshapen mother, draw satanic symbols on Samantha's stomach and make her drink blood out of a goat's skull. Samantha manages to break free, shoot their son with his own gun, stab Mr. and Mrs. Ullman, and escape to a nearby cemetery outside the home, where Mr. Ullman follows her and tells her that she is fulfilling her destiny and that she must accept quote-unquote him. Samantha has something inside of her made apparent by black marks on her stomach, indicating that the ritual worked and she's become a host for whatever entity the Almonds were trying to bring forth. She hallucinates frightening images of of Mr. Almond's grotesque mother. Using the gun she grabbed from their son, she shoots herself in the head, refusing to play a role in their ritual. She survives, however, as the lunar eclipse passes, and we see her in the hospital where we learn that she is in fact pregnant and in a coma-like state, waiting to wake up from the hellish nightmare she has experienced. Whoa, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. You are welcome. All right, so the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes. In fact, it passes a lot. Even within like the first like few minutes, it's pretty great. I was just like, wow, this is just lovely. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I like to see. (laughs) And then that was the last time you said that for the entire rest of the movie. (laughs) Oh, I have a weird relationship with this film. Um, I don't know. We'll get into it. But um, let's look at Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. Another great thing. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Okay. So with that said, let's get into our discussion. Let's talk about like representation of like feminism in House of the Devil and as well as like the 70s and 80s. Yeah, so it's apparent that the setting and time period of this film really echoes a lot of what was happening in the lives of young women at the time. Samantha is an independent college student who is clearly struggling to make ends meet without the help of her parents or like a man or like a boyfriend figure. And she's willing to do what she has to do in order to achieve her goals, and she refuses to carry the fetus of the devil in her body. So she's very, like, you know, gung-ho about her independence. And, like, for me, she and Megan, her best friend, are the actual embodiment of, like, what feminism kind of was in the 70s and 80s. Hmm, go on. Yeah, so this, this would have taken place during, like... The second wave of feminism, I believe, which like makes sense considering the content and like the plot points of the film. It has a lot to do with, you know, kind of bodily autonomy, basically, and like women taking control of their own lives. Mm, Yeah. According to an article published by Ohio Humanities, second wave feminism of the 1960s through the 1980s focused on issues of equality and discrimination. And the second wave slogan, the personal is political, 
identified women's cultural and political inequalities as inextricably linked and encouraged women to understand how their personal lives reflected sexist power structures. And Betty Friedan was a key player in second wave feminism. And in 1963, her book, The Feminine Mystique, criticized the idea that women could find fulfillment only through child rearing and homemaking. Um, and according to Frieden's New York Times obituary, her book ignited the contemporary women's movement in 1963 and as a result permanently transformed the social fabric of the United States and countries around the world. And it's widely regarded as one of the most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. And Frieden hypothesizes that women are victim of false beliefs requiring them to, identi to find identity in their lives through husbands and children. And this causes women to lose their own identities in that of their family. So, like, the great irony, and really one of the ultimate horrors in all of this, is that Samantha is trying so desperately to create a home for just herself. And it's like, it's there. It's just within her grasp, but it's taken from her because she's impregnated against her will. And life just seems to be like this constant struggle for her. There's a great essay by Vicky Torello, who is also Nightmare Maven on YouTube. And her essay is called Fear of Feminism, the House of the Devil. And she says, quote, the house of the devil and Rosemary's baby both play on the same level, but have one very important difference in Rosemary's baby. Rosemary wants to get pregnant, but is at the mercy of the satanic cult that meets in her apartment building. Samantha, on the other hand, doesn't want to get pregnant. And as her friend Megan points out to her in the pizza place, Samantha doesn't even like kids. <laughs> and Samantha isn't concerned with the child at all, unlike Rosemary, and ends up shooting herself to keep the Satan spawn from being born. And the ending of The House of the Devil reveals Samantha in the hospital, not dead from a bullet to her head, which may or may not be the work of her devil fetus as a nurse revealed that the baby will be okay too the idea of samantha being lured into an isolated location raped and then killing herself can be compared to the most recent wave of femin of the feminist movement a part of this movement is dedicated to ending rape culture and women being in control of their bodies by having access to birth control and or contraceptives and even abortion and what's so funny about that is that you know, the recent wave, but this sounds just like what was happening in the 70s, too. Yes, 100%. So nothing's changed, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to feel hopeless. <laughs> I'm glad that we're all still big, fat losers. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So when I read that quote from Vicky, I just thought, wow, like that that is true like it is a recent thing in feminism but it just never went away apparently right. so right wow that's really that's why this film kind of works even in this time period because um it takes place in a in a different time period right the 70s or 80s um but that's why it works in a modern setting as well which we'll talk about nostalgia later but uh yeah that's pretty relevant 
Um, and you mentioned how there's like Samantha doesn't need a boyfriend or anything. And yeah, like there are no male romantic interests in this film. Mm-hmm. At least none that we see. Like Samantha doesn't have a boyfriend, like you mentioned. And Megan apparently has one. But he's only mentioned once, I think. And he's not really like her boyfriend. He's more of like a fuck buddy or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's really not in the picture. Literally, he's not in the film. So it's it's a really interesting thing. Like the story really centers around their friendship, which I think is really great and super refreshing. And like the only boyfriend that we do see belongs to Samantha's roommate and he's a huge creep and she doesn't like him. So like, yeah. So it's like, whatever. He's sort of whatever. So the fresh like friendship dynamic between Megan and Samantha is really good. Um, I also want to share this quote by Rachel Catlett, who says of Samantha, quote, I would say that the protagonist of House of the Devil, Samantha, is perhaps not as obviously badass as some of the other women in horror. What she lacks in badassery, she makes up in relatability. Yeah. Yep. She is a poor college student who is strapped for cash and doing everything in her power to better, better her situation. The desperation that is in her inevitable downfall is not only understandable, it also makes this movie more frightening. As many of us have been there, the haunting implication is that this could have happened to any one of us, unquote. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so true. Let's talk a little bit about, we've talked about pregnancy. Let's talk about actual motherhood in House of the Devil. So there are three mothers in this film. There's the landlady who is very sweet and kind, but I think it's really only because Samantha reminds her so much of her own daughter. Mm -hmm. So Samantha is sort of at the mercy of this mother who is willing to give her slack because she's such a good girl. But of course, like this landlady has no idea who she is or what she's really like. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's that. And then there's Mrs. Ullman, who is the mother of A.J. Bowen's character, Victor. She is sort of like a femme fatale type when we first meet her. She dresses all in black. She wears furs and her hair is all tied up nicely. And she's like a sexy, confident mom. But when she is faced with her Lord Satan, she melts. Yeah. And she takes off her facade, which is represented by her wig, and Samantha kills her and runs off. And there's also the mother in the attic. There's Mr. Ullman's mother, right? Uh, at least we're made to believe that she's his mother. And this mother is revealed to be a grotesque, like, witch-like figure. As part of the ritual, she slices Samantha's arm and pours the blood into the goat skull, like you said. And she uses the blood to draw occult symbols on Samantha's stomach and forehead. And when Samantha just eventually escapes, right, you said in the in the plot summary, she starts having, like, visions of her in her head. Yeah. So there are these three mothers presents, presented to us, and... So like I mentioned earlier, like the first one's kind of gentle, but she has no name. And as I said before, like she seems like to only give Samantha slack because she reminds her of her own daughter. And this could be like the sort of sad, lonely aspect of motherhood. Like you have no name. You are just mother, right? And where other people remind you of your children and maybe you have no one else or anything else in your life so that this is the only thing that defines you. And 
Mrs. Allman is sort of the anti-lonely mother. She seems very cool and put together. And it's not until she begins to grovel at Satan's feet, a.k.a. a powerful male figure's feet, that we see who she really is. Like, she's not confident and she depends on a man, a.k.a. Satan's love and attention. And when that's gone, she's literally no one. Like, she actually does need a man to survive, which I thought was really interesting. Huh, yeah. And then Mother, who is also nameless, worships Satan, but she is cold and she's spooky. And she's old. She's the one that does the ritual that gets Samantha pregnant. And it's because of her old-fashioned ways, let's say, that Samantha gets pregnant. In fact, Samantha is forced to be pregnant, like you said. And that sounds an awful lot like Hereditary with Annie and her mother, Ellen, right? Mm -hmm. Like, motherhood, as well as the good girl mentality, is being forced upon Samantha by the older generation of women that feels it is necessary for these quote-unquote new feminist women. And unfortunately, that makes sense thematically why Megan is killed. Like, it fucking sucks because she's the best character in the film, but she's too new woman. Like, she has a boyfriend. She eats, like, in a very masculine, kind of slobbish way. She smokes and she drives her own car and she, like, tries to stay sexy and not get murdered. And then, of course, she does get murdered because she's too smart. Like, she... She knows that something is up and something's wrong. So she has to go. The I also want to point out that, like, obviously Megan is killed by a man, the almond son, who also drugs Samantha via the pizza that he delivered. And it's almost as if through this lineage of women, the only thing that they've created is death and, like, a destructive force. Like, their heritage is continued through a male heir, but they need a female in order to produce the Antichrist. So there's like a few dualities when it comes to the women in this film. And I love it because it's kind of all a metaphor for like the idea that we have of the devil or like the shadow self. You need life and death and as above, so below. And we kind of talked about that in our episode um, about the witch, how... Women can be like motherly and matriarchal, but also completely destructive in their search for a higher sense of self. And we see it like when Thomason signs the, the pact with Black Philip, who is the devil. And again, here, when grandmother and mother almond try to bring forth the Antichrist, it's really wild. Hello everybody, my name is Deverne, and I'm the host of the Cinema Recall Podcast, part of That Moment In Presents. We are slightly different than your average movie podcast in that we don't review a whole feature. Instead, myself and a guest will break down our favorite scenes in movies and then discuss why they are so iconic. So check us out, we are available on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. We're under That Moment in Presents. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Cinema Recall Podcast. And we are available on Twitter at Cinema underscore Recall. We hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. So let's talk about satanic panic and women in House of the Devil. So first off, a brief history of the satanic panic. Uh, it's sort of, it's not so brief, but it's, it's... <laughs> It's interesting. 
So, as many people know, the satanic panic started with false allegations surrounding satanic ritual abuse. Mm -hmm. I believe the majority of these allegations began after the Manson family murders of the late 1960s. And it was the summer of 1969, to be exact. And according to Aja Romano, quote, that same year... Organist turned occultist Anton LaVey published his philosophical treatise, The Satanic Bible, which plagiarized several sources and mostly regurgitated earlier philosophies of self-actualization and self-empowerment from writers like H.L. Menchkin and Ayn Rand. Nevertheless, it became the seminal work of modern Satanism and the key text for the Church of Satan, a group LeVay had officially founded in 1966, unquote. That's when, like, the 70s came along, right? And the book and the film, The Exorcist, caused a huge stir, and this decade also saw the rise of self proclaimed former Satanists who insisted that the world was being run by ritualistic satanic witch cults. And the 1970s also saw the rise in serial killers, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Son of Sam, and the Zodiac Killer, and just so many others. Mm. So judging by the look and style of this film, it feels like it was made in the late 70s or early 80s. So let's look a little bit at what was happening in the early 80s, too. There were the Tylenol murders, the AIDS crisis, Dungeons and Dragons, and missing kids on milk cartons. And people became scared of their own neighbors. And more importantly and sadly, they were scared of their own children, So you can learn more about the satanic panic and its lasting effects on our society by reading Aja Romano's article. It's listed in the show notes, but I want to talk more about satanic panic and how it affected women during this time, especially. So women and children were most commonly portrayed as the victims of satanic ritual abuse in the late 60s and 70s. And according to Peg Alloy, quote, Rumors of satanic ritual abuse were allowed to proliferate due to flawed psychological treatment practices that had become popular but that have since been discredited, such as hypnosis and recovered memory. The description of these crimes were all eerily similar and all bore a marked resemblance to horror films from the 1960s and 70s. In particular... Rosemary's baby. Mm-hmm. So details like candles and knives, people standing in a circle, either nude or wearing ritual robes, chanting or singing, consumption of wine or blood, all these could be traced to various occult movies or books, unquote. And huh. famous model and actress Jane Mansfield was even considered a victim of satanic abuse after she was violently killed in a car crash. And the tabloids suggested that LeVay himself had cursed her for leaving his coven, even though there's no solid proof that she was ever a Satanist to begin with. And oh my God. Yeah, it's a really if you really want to go down a rabbit hole of weird, interesting stories, like Jane Mansfield and Anton LaVey is a great is a great rabbit hole. Nice. 
Uh, however, the early 1980s also saw a rise in neo-paganism and mostly women-led interest in goddess worship and feminist witchcraft. Woo! So, this is why this film sort of irks me the wrong way. Because women in history and in film have been portrayed as victims of satanic ritual abuse, like, forever. And it didn't end up being true. Yeah. Yep. And House of the Devil feels like a time capsule, but it's not. It's a modern film. And... I would have loved to have seen something a bit different. I would have loved to have found out that maybe Samantha was a practicing witch who was not going to be taken advantage of the satanic ritual abuse. It, like, the Satanism could have actually been like a met- metaphor, you know? Like, I suppose Samantha does escape them, but in the end, she is doomed to carry the devil's child. So really, like, in the film, she's still a victim of satanic ritual abuse. And, like, I know at the beginning of this episode we mentioned how unaware House of the Devil is in terms of its nostalgia, which is part of its allure, but I also think, like, a major part of its downfall is that, you know, like, I feel like it should be self-aware in some way, you know, like, many tropes from the 70s and 80s uh, from their films were very harmful as well, like, if we want to take a look at Stranger Things as an example, like the Duffer brothers completely change Hopper's character from like he starts out as this sort of angry, depressed and disbelieving man uh, to a nurturing, kind and respectful father by season two. But then like season three comes along and Hopper is a completely different person. Like he like is is such a different guy from season two. He disbelieves Joyce about the Upside Down, even though she's always been right about it before. He disrespects Eleven's privacy as well uh, as threatening to hurt and kill Mike, like her boyfriend. And like, it's all a quote unquote joke, but it's still really harmful. And these are all traits that are from like the badass men or the manly men of the 80s. Um, But they're also, there's some romantic harmful tropes here as well. Like when he's with Joyce, like it would maybe have been different if Joyce at the end of season three uh, just refused to go out with him and told him like he needs to grow up here and not be such a disrespectful jerk. But that doesn't happen. She says, I'll go out with you at the end. And so it's like, to me, it just sort of shows like, I feel like there's characters from Cheers who were like this and um, Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford sort of made his career off of this. Um, there's a really great YouTube channel where pop culture, pop culture detective talks about this and I'll link it in the show notes. But going back to House of the Devil, this is like another reason why this film irks me, right? Is because like maybe nostalgia films should be self-aware, especially when it comes to treatment of women in horror because there were like there were real women at the time, like in the 80s, who were involved in neo-pagan movements. And my mother-in-law was one of them. And that movement really helped empower a lot of women. So I guess it it would have been nice to just see something like that in Samantha. Um, and I know that she does show some empowerment by like working really hard. And she's relatable in a sense, like where she's a struggling college student. But I feel like the ending was needing something. And I think that's what it needed, in my opinion. Like, obviously, you all can disagree with me. 
And I'm also just really bitter that Megan dies so brutally. But, you know, like I said, it's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I sort of feel the same way. Like, this could have been a really great opportunity to add, like, a kick-ass female horror role in the genre. But, like, it takes a very tragic and abrupt turn. And, I mean, it is pretty tropey in that it victimizes a young female woman and, like, bodily autonomy doesn't really exist for her even though she's done nothing wrong like honestly she's just she's just trying to make some money and it's like well yeah and like I don't feel like I don't feel like she needs to be a badass or anything but it would have made it like a more interesting film if there was like a little twist like she ended up being a neo-pagan of the 1980s who was sort of metaphorically put into this position of being connected to Satanism even though the two inherently don't even have anything to do with each other. Yeah. Instead we sort of get a rehash of Rosemary's baby but like as Vicky mentions it's the opposite reaction like she doesn't want the baby but the concept to me is so old and so contrived in this film it I would have it would have been really nice if it was just turned around a bit and I don't know themes are important to stories so I just wish there had been more themes in this one and not just like the last 15 minutes where her running away from a cult like I wish there would have been maybe something to sort of turn that on its head that's totally understandable and there's this really great article that I found and it was written for MTV back in 2016 by Teo Bugby, I think is how you pronounce her name. And she talks about how sexism is like it's apparent in old horror films as well as newer ones. And she said, even in films that weren't made by abusers, there is an element of gendered toxicity that runs through horror history. Carrie and the Exorcist build horror out of girls' puberty, and scenes like Carrie's first period and Linda Blair impaling herself with a cross are among the most iconic moments in horror film history. Rape is a driving force within the genre, and its threat, its execution, and its revenge make the basis make the basis for classics like The Last House on the Left, I Spit on Your Grave, and Deliverance. And for every one of the classics, there's about a thousand exploitative ripoffs. Feminine madness propels films like Possession. Promiscuity results in the it of It Follows. And for every final girl in the horror film canon, you can find a debilitating pregnancy by demon to match. There is no obligation to watch toxic horror films. No tablet handed down from the seventh circle of hell dictating that actually, if you want to be the one with the horror movie devil, you really must start with Roman Polanski. It's possible to use film history to contextualize and minimize the outsized reputations of the men at hand. Polanski was just cribbing off of Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast for his famous production designs in Repulsion. Hitchcock made thrillers, but for a taste of the real classic Hollywood horror, look for Jacques Tourneur. This is a great lead into our next topic, which is like a huge major key point of this film, and it is nostalgia in modern horror movies. Yes, and it's also our final thought. So I want to share this quote from Cameron Beale 
she says, quote, a lot of credit goes to Jade Healy, the production designer, who absolutely nails the period elements. I've never seen such a flawless recreation of the 1980s, right down to the feathered hair and mom jeans. The House of the Devil <laughs> absolutely succeeds in convincing audiences that it is a lost film, right, from the VHS format's heyday. Obviously, West's affinity for the 80s aesthetic conceits run rampant through the House of the Devil. It serves a very real story sense in that there was a very real satanic panic in the early 80s that fueled mainstream paranoia over murderous cults, which informs West's approach to the film. However, the 80s conceit goes one step further in amplifying the suspense because it places the story at a point in time where breakdowns in communication were still possible. With no cell phones or internet, Samantha is truly isolated in the house, which generates that kind of terror that comes with being helpless and alone. It's a specific type of terror that you simply can't get with a story set in our current, always connected day and age. West furthers the structural aesthetic of the 80s horror filmmaking by mimicking old-fashioned freeze-frame opening titles right down to the vintage yellow type. So, we, like we mentioned earlier, so this film is just full, like, chocked full of nostalgia. And I've heard some people comment that what's kind of missing from the film is maybe like a marijuana-filled party or something, or like at least drinking. And that might have been, like, that might have made a, a more like teen college age 70s horror film, but I really didn't mind that that wasn't included. Like, to me, this film felt more like a Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Amityville horror film than, let's say, like Friday the 13th. Yeah, and I mean, I I think the other part of that is that Samantha is more like like a Jamie Lee Curtis circa Halloween character. Like she's a hard worker who wants to make her own way, and partying obviously isn't her thing because that's exactly what she's trying to get away from by having her own space, and she's willing to do anything that she has to to make that possible. I just I I don't feel like every film needs to have like a party scene or anything. I don't. You know, even Halloween didn't have a party scene, so right, exactly. It's like there's no there's no need for it. Um, but the question I want to ask now is: so why do we, as an audience, love nostalgic horror? Well, <laughs> we could argue that it's familiar. Like nostalgia is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. So. Nostalgia is a good feeling. It's a comforting feeling. And according to Angie Berry, millennial has become a handy catch-all term for almost anyone between the ages of 20 and 40, which is you and I, Abby. Like, we're the 80s babies and those whose formative years are full of 80s pop culture. Most of us have incriminating childhood photos full of feathered hair, day glow shirts, scrunchies, and leg warmers. And these days, we may have we may be tattooed and sprouting undercuts, <laughs> but we can't escape our glittery, bedazzled days. And she goes on to say, in a world that seems to be teetering on the verge of total destruction, full of mass shootings, hate crimes, natural disasters, inept governments, and increasing tensions with nuclear-powered dictatorships, we crave comfort. 
We long to feel safe and nostalgic horror gives us that. But horror, you might scoff, comfort and safety through horror? It's really not that far-fetched. Plenty of people suffering from anxiety and stress disorders have already discovered the healing power of the genre, unquote. This is so great because we use the healing power of nostalgia as well as the healing power of horror in films like this one. Like, they come together and work hand in hand, which is why I think that, for all of its flaws, people still enjoy this film. Like, heck, that's really the only reason why I enjoy this film, to be honest. Like, it has, there's so much going on with it, but I love nostalgic horror. I'm always on the hunt for 70s and 80s horror films that I've never seen before. So, I'm not mad that modern movies are also making them like in the same vein. Like this film has so many flaws, but there is something really comforting about it. And this is a compliment, but I was like sitting on my couch, like watching this film and I, I got wrapped up in a blanket and I had like a cup of tea and, and I felt really good watching it. Like I felt, Ooh, like cozy. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it, it's like. It feels like a movie that you would watch with your friends like on Halloween night all together like in college that's what it reminds me of and like the first time I watched this I was in college so like every time I rewatch it I'm like oh that's so nice <laughs> you're reminded of that time yeah exactly I don't remember so. the first time I first saw this but I do remember like it must have been around Halloween time because I think mm. you mentioned it to me yeah, and it might have been before how, like the podcast even started. Oh, it was def it was definitely before the podcast and I remember you telling me about it and I was like, "Oh, there's something different about it." And Ty West has said like it's not an artsy film, blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cuz I'm thinking, "Yeah, it's definitely an art film. Are you kidding me?" Like, of course it is. Like you it's a slow burn and slow burns are kind of arty because you find you find drama and you find action in the little things. Yes. And he does that with this film, whether he realizes that or not. So, uh, yeah, I think that this film, there is like a, 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 a comfort level with it that I really enjoy. All right. So, guys, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away Patreon gifts, review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes, so become a patron, won't you? Yeah, and you can also help support the show by following us on social media, Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.